into that. Well, we do have much to praise the Lord about. And I thought as we journey into the text, before we get there, we just need to reflect. We've got a wall, figuratively speaking, to walk around. To reflect on what God has done this past year at CBF. And I just wanted to highlight a few of these as we go through it. As you look at the screen, the first thing, obviously, as we talk about what the Lord has done. If I go back one, sorry about that. Oh, no. We, we're going to do two at once. All right. The last year, as we look at over 5.3 million has been committed to the Growing by Faith capital campaign. Wow. In fact, over half of that money or approximately half of the money has already been given. This is a three-year commitment. And we have much to celebrate, don't we? Think about it. This past year is when we we started this campaign, uh, and, and already this is where we are. To those that are involved in overseeing the capital campaign, as well as our building committee, and Bob Horn, the project manager, would you all stand? We just want to thank you for all you're doing. Yes, thank you, men, women. What's exciting is uh, stay tuned because next month, September, we will have our groundbreaking ceremony. Uh, and uh, I'm just so excited to see what God is doing, and we praise him for this. Over $50,000 of, of our budget has already been given to missions to support both local outreach and global outreach just in this past year. We launched a missions committee, and if you all would stand under the direction of Bob Whitmore, I want to thank you guys as a team. Where are you? Uh, they may be serving out in the area. Thank you very much. The, the missions committee uh, is 10% of our giving, giving, not our budget, our giving goes to missions and they're continuing as they've now set forth a philosophy of who we are, where we're headed and are moving forward. Our upcoming missions conference you won't want to miss, which is in October. It's entitled From Jerusalem to the Ends of the Earth. And one of the keynote speakers is Bill Babion. If that last name sounds familiar, that's Ben's father who's been involved in missions for many, many years. You won't want to miss that. And then the week following will be Michael Zinn, who's the director of Chosen People Ministries in Israel. I've heard him speak more than once, and I assure you, bring a Kleenex, you'll need it. Uh, his parents were in the Holocaust, uh, and he came to know the Lord in his testimony will rock your world. So take note of that, and that's exciting. And speaking of finances, we hired this past year Julie Ryman to oversee all of our finances. So thank you, Julie. I hate balancing my checkbook, and so I'm so glad we have her here. Uh, it's wonderful. So also in this past year, nearly 12,000 units viewed our online services can you believe that? That's units. That's not viewers with 34,000 unique viewers. That comes from over 40 states and 30 countries that are viewing. Majority of them are viewing live uh, during a service. So to those of you out there, wherever you are, if it's Zimbabwe uh, or wherever, we're so grateful you have joined us. And, and I'll tell you, that takes a team to ensure the quality of our online services. And so to Nate Pletcher and to all of you who are working, thank you very much. We so appreciate what you do. That crew is here at 7 in the morning on Sundays, and they don't usually leave till 1230 or 1. Uh, so thank you very much for all that you do. Well, here's another stat for you this past year. 
In the past 12 months, we have served 7,200 cups of coffee, 4,200 donuts. Now, uh, these are all uh, sugar-free, calorie-free, so it's great. And I'll tell you, uh, this is under the leadership of Amy Flynn, our administrative director. She oversees 80 volunteers in our welcome area, hospitality, the Harbor Cafe, and this team is here by 7 a.m.-ish, and they're transforming this high school into uh, a church. And so to Amy and your crew, thank you very much. We appreciate it. What else has God done? Well, in the past 12 months, we secured a 4,200-square-foot building on 161st along with 15 acres, and that is paid for uh, at a price tag of only 500000 which is a God thing. It's appraised at $2 million. Uh, we are just so grateful. And I, I want to thank Ed Martin and his team who help oversee that facilities. And, if, and there's a group that volunteered to landscape, which is gorgeous. So all of you who are a part of that, in fact, let's have you stand. I should add the last group stand. We just want to honor you and thank you. Uh, thank you for all you do. Yeah, we, we finally have a sign that says future home of, if you'll notice that's out there. And that's exciting. Well, let me give you another God moment in this past year. Over 100 individuals by the end of this month will have been added to the membership of, of CBF. Isn't that exciting? Uh, we have over 30 people joining the church at the end of this month. Uh, that is something to rejoice over. And so we've added another elder this past year. And to Mike Razor, who oversees our elders, our elder board, we've also added additional deacons. If our elders and deacons would stand and I just want to thank you for your role in the life of the church and caring for the saints. But we're not done. As we move even further, as we look, over 80 children have participated in our children's ministry. We launched this last September, and already we've had 80 children. There's over 50 volunteers, as I understand, that are needed monthly to set up, tear down, serve, change diapers, and, and really minister to these children, quote scripture over them, pray over them, even if they're in a diaper. And I'll tell you, much of this is because of two ladies who have served faithfully in establishing this ministry for us. And I'm going to ask them to come forward. And that is Tilly Pyatt and Lori Evans. I'm going to put them on the spot. The reason I'm doing this is that they've said, okay, we've got the ministry rolling. We're now wanting to hand the baton to some others. And so I want to just thank both of them. They have full-time jobs. They've willingly taken on this task, and it's been fantastic. So, Tilly, thank you so much. I love you. That's for you. Lori, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. If... You haven't volunteered to serve in the children's ministry area. We'd love to have you. Uh, it is a dynamite group of people that are just caring for our kids. Uh, and Pastor Michael is overseeing that. And so see him if you'd like to volunteer. And so I'm just so, again, so grateful for them. Uh, I also should mention with the deacons, Richard and Susan Nelson oversee that. And I'm just so grateful for them as well. There's all these names. You realize we have over 200 volunteers in a year at CBF. That's just so exciting. Uh, also, let me give you another. Uh, approximately, as you're looking at this, 40 individuals served in our worship area. 
In January, we hired a full-time director of worship, Ben Babion. Ben, we're so thankful you're here. December, we launched our choir. They're going to resume in September, so get ready. I'm excited. Uh, I've heard the repertoire. It's just fantastic. The choir director's dynamite, too. Uh, if you don't know, that's my wife. Um, and, and I'm just so excited and so grateful for all of those involved, whether it's band or on the worship team. So if you all would stand in your service to our church, we just want to thank you publicly for that. Thank you. We, last season, we launched a Christmas Eve service. We will have another one this year. So mark your calendars for that. And also, we formed a creative arts committee that are assisting with decorations, etc. And they are starting officially today. So we're grateful for them. Here's another stat for you. We average 35 teenagers every event. They meet weekly uh, for Bible study. Gym, this summer, it's been basketball one week, worship another week. They have monthly events as well. In fact, as you know, as Pastor Michael stated, you guys are going to an Indians game. And in September, they have a retreat at Twin Lakes Camp. If you've not signed up for it, teens, do that. It's dynamite. And it's, it's so important that the church leadership said, no, we're paying for the whole cotton caboodle. So you know, there's not a dime out of your pocket. And so parents, encourage your teens to participate in that. We have nearly 20 men's and women's ministries that have occurred this past year. We are blessed to have Dr. Tom Crago overseeing adult ministries. And included in his team is Dorothy Gilbert. I want to thank Dorothy and Debbie Baldwin uh, and the countless others who've come alongside and offered these various events, uh, particularly I think of the women's events that are for all ages, all walks of life. In fact, their past Christmas gathering, we had 130 women gathering. That's a lot of tea and snacks, all calorie-free, of course. Uh, we also offered uh, a Sunday school class for adults starting last fall. And starting next week, there will be two adult classes, one on evangelism that will be taught uh, by Mark Sullivan and a course on Ephesians by Eludu Yella. I certainly want to thank Todd Reitz and John Lieberman for teaching the adult class this past year. Another thing that's exciting under adult ministries is that we're going to launch small groups starting this fall, and Matt McKenzie is overseeing that, and we already have some groups lined up. And then under this is the prayer ministry that Lurdu Yella has overseeing on Thursday nights at the center from 6.30 to 8. There's a whole group of, an army of people praying for you, for this church. Uh, I think last uh, when, uh, Thursday they had over 20 people that had gathered to pray. It's exciting to see what God is doing. So many thanks to all those involved in this arena. Let me give you another stat. 18 care packages were sent out to college students. 18. If you remember last week, if you were here, 11 college students were standing up here, which I just think is exciting. But uh, caring for them, Tom Crago offered a Sunday school class over the summer for college age and college and career, and we're going to continue to offer that this fall. Well, you look at all those stats as you go down, there's one thing in common, and that is one very blessed congregation seeking to love God and love one another well. So CBF, happy anniversary. Keep up letting Christ be seen in and through us as a body of believers. Exciting, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I know. It makes my socks want to roll up and down. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, and, and indeed, we, uh, we look at what you've done this past year, and it's, it's very humbling. It's not about us. It's not about CBF. You don't need CBF, but you've seen fit to birth this church in Westfield. You've seen fit to raise up an army of volunteers to minister to one another and to minister to our community and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Father, I'm excited to see what lies ahead in this next year as we break ground, as we look to build, Lord, through the, the Growing by Faith campaign. For the ministries that will be launched, Lord, we just ask for your hand of blessing and protection Lord, may we be known as a body of believers that truly love you and love one another well. Lord, guide us as we go to the text today. Lord, we know this has been a difficult week for many. We think again of Ron Page diagnosed with leukemia this week, ALL. We just pray, Lord, that you would give the doctors wisdom as they begin a treatment of chemo for him. Lord, and for Diane Horn, who is suffering with a brain tumor. Lord, it's a reminder this world is not our home, and we do pray, Lord, that your son would come quickly. Until then, thank you for the great privilege of being ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have just joined us, this is your first Sunday with us. We've been journeying through the book of Nehemiah. Next week, we will launch our study of 1 Peter, one of my favorite books. Uh, a little humor there. I, I, love, I do love 1 Peter. It's called The Epistle of Grace, and the theme for the series is Hope in a Hopeless World. And I cannot think of a better book to speak to the times in which we're living. So looking forward to that. But Nehemiah 13. We've seen a series of events. Chapter 8, the scriptures were read. Revival broke out. 9, they, they committed themselves to the Lord. 10, even through 12, it was this revival. And last week was the dedication of the walls that they built in 52 days. Things were just going well. And so Nehemiah states in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13, if you'll just look at this, we'll read that portion. He says here, <clears throat> in light of all of this, during all of this time, I was not in Jerusalem. We'll get to this in a minute. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, this is, in other words, he was, he was in the land for 20 years. This is uh, 12 years, excuse me. Now he's going back. I've gone to the king. After some time, I had requested leave of the king, and I returned to Jerusalem. So between 12 Chapter 12 and chapter 13, Nehemiah has hand the reins off to the, the local yokels. Things are going so well in Jerusalem, in the land of Yehud, the province of Persia uh, for the Jews. And he has gone back to Susa. Remember, he was a cupbearer there. Chapter 1 tells us that. He was in the king's quarters, King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. This was the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time. And Nehemiah was his, his cupbearer. So Nehemiah reports back to him, and now we're told he returns to Israel, to back to Yehud. Now, 
How long has he gone? The scriptures don't tell us. It takes two to three months from, to get from Jerusalem in the first, this time frame uh, back to Susa. So at the bare minimum, he's gone six months. But he's gone. And when he returns, you would expect this great revival, right, to continue. I mean, the temple's thriving synagogues are being established. It's marvelous. And yet, this chapter ends on a, oh, what? It's, in, it's, it's, it's actually embarrassing. There's even some scholars who've tried to strip 13 out of the book because it's so bad. And you're going, this can't be. How can all these things happen? The, the spiritual vitality you expected has waned. And the things that had been stressed earlier in the book, the temple, purity, sanctification, all of these things being set apart, being holy, all of this has been imploded. What they promised they would do in 10, they're not doing in 13. And you say, man, what a humdinger for an anniversary Sunday, right? 13. But hang with me, because there's something exciting, this undertow of Nehemiah that we get to thrive in and, and experience, and that is the coming of the Holy Spirit and Christ's work on the cross. What Nehemiah is trying to tell us is the reform cannot ultimately take hold until Christ comes and dies on the cross for sin. And, and as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is reckoned to our account. So the only way this can be reversed. Well, let's look at this text. And as we see this, in chapter 13, there's going to be three major reforms. It'll be the area of, that we're going to see uh, that deal with the temple, with uh, marriage and the defilement of the priest. It'll be broken down into several other categories, which is there found in your notes. In each of these areas, we're going to see prayer being inserted. Remember, this book began with prayer. It ends with prayer. And you'll see that throughout. There'll also be a series of rhetorical questions that Nehemiah will raise in chapter 13. The Israelites who have not fared so well spiritually do not comment. There's no word from them. Only Nehemiah will speak. And in all of these cases, as we move through chapter 13, this Nehemiah is a little different than what we've seen before. He's aggressive. He will physically remove people. He will threaten and he will even beat the violators in chapter 13. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that all about? Well, I think scholars rightly have identified that the practices Nehemiah forcibly corrects as more than just, they're not simply failures. They are very, they're the heart of what is wrong, the corruption, and that what is needed to exalt the Lord. So we'll come back to that as we move through. But let's look at verses one through three. This is the first compromise, the needed reform that he finds as he returns to the land. On that day, the book of Moses was read in the hearing of the people. They found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of God. For they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but instead had hired Balaam to curse them. Our God, however, turned the curse into blessing. It says, when they heard the law, they removed from Israel all who were of mixed ancestry. So the first thing we see here is there's been a compromise made among the people. 
this prohibition is not new. The Old Testament law stated you were to not have anything to do with the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now remember, they were relatives. Those tribes descended from Lot. Remember, Lot and Abraham were connected. They were kinfolk. But unfortunately, the Ammonites and, and Moabites, as even stated here in Nehemiah 13, did not help the Israelites in their wanderings. They did not allow them to have water. They did not give them safe passage. And so consequently, God took out a, a paddle and he spanked the Ammonites and he spanked the Moabites and he forbid them to be in the temple. And what's worse, we're going to see a connection here with those tribes, with the people. So the first thing is... Nehemiah says, no, 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 you're not to be doing this. This was not allowed. And notice what he says in verses, uh, verse 4 we see, but prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, a relative of Tobiah, had been appointed over the storerooms of the temple of our God. So the next thing we see here in verse 4 is not only did they allow the Ammonites and Moabites to intermarry and to be a part of the temple complex, Tobiah, remember, he, he's been an enemy of the state. His name has come up several times. When you hear that, you should go, boo, yes. Right? He's, he's not someone you, you want your daughter to date, I assure you. I mean, he sought military uh, uh, forces to attack Israel when they were building the walls. He tried to assassinate Nehemiah. And now, this Ammonite, Tobiah, has been given the storeroom. We are, we are told elsewhere that Nea, uh, Tobiah marries one of the Judah's leaders, Shachaniah's daughter. So he's now intermarried into the leadership of Israel. And we're told here in the text, verse 4, that he has made for himself, verse 5, a large storeroom where previously they had been keeping the grain offering, the incense, and the vessels. The storeroom that was to, to house the goods to keep the temple afloat, that was to sustain the Levites, is now being used as Tobiah's shack, his place where he can hang out. And who has given it? Notice what verse 4 says, Eliashib, the priest. He's not any priest. You know, here's the irony. Who is he? He's the high priest. <laughs> he knows the purification laws. The problem with Tobiah is not only is he taking up the storeroom, but he has made it impure. Notice what the text goes on to state in verse 6. During all this time, we read this, I wasn't in Jerusalem, he's returned. Verse 7, then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by supplying him with the storeroom in the courts of the temple of God. I mean, wasn't bad enough he just gave him an outside. This is in the temple courts area. And it says, I was very upset. I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the storeroom. They had a garage sale, right? Then I gave instructions that the storeroom should be, notice this, purified. It's not, it's not only did he take up space, he's now made the whole area impure. And Eliashib, the high priest, should have known better, hands down. Secondly, the irony here is Eliashib's name means the Lord restores. Oh, that's a joke. You've done nothing to live up to your name, Eliashib, the Lord restores. And here's the third irony. Eliashib helped refortify the city of Jerusalem. 
back in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he played a key role in this. He had served. And you knew that Tobiah wanted to assassinate Nehemiah. You knew that he was going to bring military forces against you, and you give that louse a space in the temple? Are you kidding? What irony. No wonder Nehemiah blows a gasket, right? And so you see him dealing with this. Well, he's not done. In verse 10, we deal with another problem, and that's the financial neglect. And, and the question we should ask is, if, been, if the people have been giving stuff to the storeroom, how could there have been room? That's the problem. And we see it in verse 10 and 11. I also discovered that the grain offerings for the Levites had not been provided. And as a result, the Levites, that's the priests, the singers who had performed this work had gone where? To their fields. They had to eat. They had to sustain their families. And if the Israelites were not providing for the priests and their families, then they're going to have to go back to their their lands to farm. So it says, I registered a complaint, Nehemiah says. Why is the temple of God neglected? Here we see the Israelites who had promised back in chapter 10, oh, we'll do it. We'll take care of them. It's like a bunch of teenagers, right? Oh, I'll make my bed. Next morning, your bed's not made. Oh, yeah. Not our kids. I'm not putting them on the spot, Right? All these promises you have made, and they're not being fulfilled. And so the storehouses, which should have been filled with the goods from the people, <laughs> is being used for an enemy of the state so he can reside in. You want to talk about an upside-down world. And again, remember, when Nehemiah left, everything was great. They were all applying to go to seminary. I mean, they're all singing, we want to be a missionary. And we get back, and it's a disaster. And again, we don't know how long, but it, it can't be that long in between. Well, let's look at another. This is the Sabbath, starting in verse 15 of this chapter. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Are you kidding? They're not to be doing this. The Sabbath is holy. They're not to work bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys along with wine, grapes, figs. You know what irony in that as well? The Lord is providing for these people all these goods. And yet not only, they're not, not only are they ungrateful, they're doing it on the Sabbath, which was to be holy. The Sabbath was devoted to rest. It was devoted to remembering God's greatness in the created order. And it's, is, in fact, as well, the, the Sabbath was an act of remembering his deliverance, God's deliverance of them from the land of Egypt. Their lives were to, to fit in with this divine rhythm of work and rest. And they, they threw it all out, even though they had promised. The, the disaster as well is not only have they neglected God in the process of the Sabbath they're tarnishing his name with the non-Israelites. Because look at verse 16. It says, the people from Tyre, these are Phoenicians. They're modern-day Lebanon on the coast. Notice what it says. Who lived there were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem of all places. Oh, there it is. 
They're, they're defying the, the, the day of the Lord, but the Israelites are engaging them and they're tarnishing the Lord's name. So what does Nehemiah do? Obviously, he shuts down any work, economic work on the Sabbath. There's to be nothing done on the Sabbath. And he says, shut the gates of the city. So before Sabbath, until after Sabbath, these merchants from Tyre are not allowed to enter. So what do the, the merchants do from Tyre? The text tells us they hang out outside the gates. Notice what the text says. When the evening shadows, verse 19, began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut. So here it is. Verse 20, the traders and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. You can just see Nehemiah. He is needing some high blood pressure medicine at this point. Because notice what he says. The traders and the sellers of all kinds of merchandise were there. And he said to them, verse 21, why do you spend the nights by the wall? If you repeat this, I will forcibly remove you. In other words, he could arrest them, he could slap fines on them, and he could possibly terminate any right to do business in the land of Yehud. Nehemiah has that authority. And he's saying, this is what I'll do to you. Get out of here. <laughs> You're not to be here. And verse 22, it says, Then I directed the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to keep the day holy. And then we have a prayer. For this, please remember me, O oh my God, and have pity on me in keeping with your great love. This is not one of boasting. Ooh, look what I have done. Rather, it's, it's a call to the Lord. Lord, please intervene. Use me for your glory here in Jerusalem. Well, you wish that was the only problems we had to deal with, but Nehemiah is not done in verse 23. It says, also in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, um, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples mentioned and were unable, watch this, to speak the language of Judah. So I entered a complaint on their be because of them. Chapter 10, the Israelites vowed they would no longer have any sexual relationship, marital, with the Ammons, the, any foreign, any non-Jew. Why? This isn't based out of racism. It's based out of purity. And you get a hint of that here. God has made provision. We think of Ruth, who is a Moabite, who converts and is brought into the fold. And even in Ezra and Nehemiah, these two volume books, we meet non-Israelites who have come to Judaism, who've embraced it and have converted. Ezra 6, the ones who separated themselves from the ritual impurities of the nations of the land, we see. And in Nehemiah 10. So what are we talking about? He's saying to the Israelites, you need to separate yourselves from those who are not embracing the Lord as their God. They're in grave danger. The text tells us what the danger is. Did you catch that? That the people are unable to speak the land of Judah. They won't be able to understand the Torah, their father as he teaches them at a young age. And, and, and as a result... 
that could go into apostasy. The guardrails are no longer there because they don't speak the biblical language, the Hebrew language. And Nehemiah gives an example here in verse 26 that's so powerful. Was it not because of the things like these that King Solomon of Israel sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God. God made him king over Israel, but the foreign wives made even him sin. And you think you're better than Solomon is the implication? You're not. If, if they could turn Solomon's heart away, the danger is that, he, that they will do the thing, same thing to you. And again, you say, well, how prevalent was it? Look at the next verse, verse 28. Now, one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law to Sambalat. Sambalat? <laughs> you can't get any worse than that. Some see, see him as a Satan personified in Nehemiah. He was a Samaritan. Remember, he and Tobiah were in cahoots together to try to stop the Israelites from rebuilding the wall. And the high priest's grandson is married to the daughter of the worst enemy of Israel, Sambalat. It, it can't get any worse than this. No doubt it was a political move, for sure. But the point is, corruption has creeped in to the various levels. And so what does Nehemiah have to do? Verse 29, please remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood, the covenant, and the Levites. So I purify them of everything foreign, and I assign specific duties to the priest and the Levites. Purification is needed. Notice, by the way, this is amazing, verse 30. Look what it, 31, it says, I also provided the wood offering. Do you remember the wood offering? Who was to provide the wood offering? Remember this? It was the people who promised to do this back in chapter 10. Oh, we'll take care of the wood offering. And who's doing it here? Nehemiah. The house of the Lord is in utter disaster. And worse yet are the people who've wandered so far from God. How can this be? And sadly, I would argue that we live in a day where some within church, big C, are anemic. Where the gospel is no longer preeminent but shares attention with social justice issues. And areas such as abortion or sexual issues are topics that are soft-pedaled or worst embraced and even applauded. One pastor writes, far too much ministry today is undertaken without any concern for holiness. We're found that changing the way we do church is easier than changing the way we are. We find that we're not sufficiently unlike anyone else to garner notice, so we attempted to become just like everyone else instead. May we as a congregation not compromise the word of God for convenience or acceptance. That's what we want to be known as. One of the hallmarks of the, the DNA of CBF is an emphasis on the word and the centrality of the gospel. May we not wane. If so, may the Lord shut us down. We are here for his word, are we not? And that's what I love. The children's program is using Truth 78, a very solid, biblically-centered material. Our youth are heavy in discipleship and training. And this is important. 
And we want to continue that as we as a body believers. When you look at the actions that Nehemiah took, they're interesting. One, and this is in your notes, it was decisive. When it came to sinful actions, Nehemiah was not going to mess around. (laughs) There were no town hall meetings when he came back. There were no focus groups or negotiations. He took sin and he slit its juggler. He was not going to tolerate it. I love Chuck Swindoll. He says, he went for the juggler vein on sinful practices and didn't relinquish the grip until the life had been completely squeezed out of him. And that's Nehemiah. Secondly, when you look at his actions, there is clear condemnation. He does not wrangle over words. What is sin? What is not sin? Well, what are we talking? No, 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 no. There are no compromises. There are no excuses given. Besetting sins, unhallowed relationships, the self-serving pursuit of pleasure, profit, power, position, unconcern about pleasing and glorifying God in any pattern of action that anyway undermines obedience to God's written word and fidelity to Christ in the scriptures has a defiling effect in God's sight, writes Packard in his book on a passion for faithfulness. We have a responsibility as a body of believers to correct fellow believers in the purpose of restoring, correct, under Matthew 18. How we approach a person will depend on how well a person knows the offender, how what is the sin, the willingness for them to admit the wrong, etc. We know all that. But our desire is to carefully exhort one another, remembering Galatians 6, right? Take heed lest we also should sin. Confrontation is never easy. I don't think Nehemiah delighted in doing what he did in chapter 13, but he understood the seriousness of it. Another thing we see is that he sought a permanent solution. He's desired long-term effects. What's really sad with chapter 13, what's so embarrassing is this group who had been exiled as a people, taken to Babylon back in 586, now we're in the 400s, And the prayer of Nehemiah reminds me of the prayer in chapter 9. (laughs) Have you learned anything? The same cycle of sin, repentance, God restoring you. You just keep going through the same old cycle. And this is where I think Nehemiah is also saying, we need a Savior. We need something that transforms lives and dwelling of the Spirit. And we talked about that last week. Another thing I don't want you to miss as you look at chapter 13 is persistent prayer. Nehemiah prays in verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 31 of chapter 13. It's vital. He wants the Lord to know what he is doing. Remember me, O Lord, he says. Kidner in his commentary says, the prayer springs from love, not self-love, as his tireless zeal for God has testified. To hear God's well done is the most innocent and most cleansing of ambitions. It springs from humility, not self-importance. It appeals for God's help in remembering his desire to restore his name. And so we see this. You say, well, man, how do you justify Nehemiah? In verse 25, he's pulling out the hair of those that have broken the law. It seems a little violent, doesn't it? You got to remember three things. Number one, 
Nehemiah is dealing with sin, the very sin that brought them into exile back in 586. This is serious stuff. <laughs> he says, don't, don't take this for granted. Are you kidding what God has done? And then you would go back to that? The, the line he gives in verse 18, he says, did not our ancestors do the same and God brought upon us all this evil? That is verbatim from Numbers. When Moses says, what are you doing? You're doing the same thing our ancestors did. Do you want to go back into exile, into slavery? This is serious stuff. Secondly, Nehemiah has sacrificed much for Israel. <laughs> He's undoubtedly frustrated by sin. One scholar writes, if we find ourselves the feeling that Nehemiah was judgmental, we need to check to ensure that we're not simply reflecting the prejudices of the corrupt and corrupting culture for which we are part. And third, Nehemiah acted according to the Jewish law. Floggings and imposed shavings of heads were required for those who blatantly were involved in mixed marriages. Marriages that would distract from Yahweh, from the Lord. In fact, as well for breaking the Sabbath under the Old Testament law, what happened to you? You were dead. They would stone you. So being locking the doors is not that severe as what could have been done. But Nehemiah understood the call for purity among the people. As we look at a second anniversary one, I wrote down three things in your notes. We need to be cautious not to let relativism, pluralism, pluralism, duel our understanding of the weightiness of sin. We are called to live according to the scriptures. Second Corinthians 6, do not become partners with those who do not believe or partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. Verse 17, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch unclean things and I welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and I will be your sons and daughters, says the all-powerful Lord. God has blessed these two years at CBF, and we want his blessing if he should tarry for the next two, 20, 40 years, do we not? D.A. Carson made this statement, and it's so profound. He says, people do not drift towards holiness Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delighting in God. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of loss of self-control and call it relaxation. So slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Wow. May that not be said of our church. As we celebrate, as we walk around these walls, by God's grace, may we continue to hold fast to the things of the Lord. And that's point B of your notes. We have the great privilege of serving as instruments of reform. Don't we? <laughs> Second Corinthians 5, the text a portion of the text we read earlier. We are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making his plea through us. On this second anniversary, we have much to celebrate. And, and we went through many of the things that are tangible, but there's some incredible intangible things. The people who've been baptized, people that are rededicating their life, 
One person commented to one of our staff members recently, I've been a Christian for a long time. My faith was very stagnant. I've been coming to CBF since the fall, and my faith has grown by leaps and bounds. Amen. That's what we're about, are we not? Making disciples, fulfilling the Great Commission, and, and we have that great privilege. We have an opportunity to bring reform that's life-changing. Sadly for Nehemiah, <laughs> he, didn't ha he was on that side of the cross. We are on the other side and have the privilege of joining forces with what Christ is seeking to accomplish on this globe. And finally, we're called to walk humbly before the Lord as he chooses us for his honor and his glory. Philippians 1, Paul writes to the church, for my God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, on our second anniversary, we will, if the Lord should tarry, may we join forces with Nehemiah in praying. May the Lord see fit to continue to bless CBF. May he remember us and have pity on us in keeping with his great love. Father, we come to you and we definitely are grateful that we could be called your children, that your son's righteousness has been reckoned to our account. And Lord, you've given us the opportunity to go and make disciples. Father, Nehemiah 13 is a warning to the church to stay, stand fast. The Israelites struggled. Yes, they were on the other side of the cross, but we only need to read the seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to see the danger that lies for the church. Lord, continue to use CBF. Continue to watch over her. Keep us from the evil one. And Lord... If you should tarry, we pray that the next generations would see a body of believers that loved you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and we loved one another 